me uh, go over the announcements. First of all, a reminder that uh, Saturday we're supposed to have our uh, annual picnic. We will not be having our annual picnic on Saturday. It, I talked to Orlando yesterday. It's muddy. Not real muddy, but it's right on the edge. But then they're expecting more rain overnight Friday night. So we won't know what impact that has until early Saturday morning. But if it rains at all, he said, it's just going to make it non-usable. So we will postpone it. We had planned that so that the next Saturday would be our our rain day, rain makeup day. So that would mean that is the uh, 14th. So get your if we don't have the picnic Saturday, and we're not, Get your taxes done this weekend, and then you don't have to worry about it uh, the next weekend. Also, I need to meet with the deacons right after uh, class tonight for a little uh, little talk about some things, but uh, nothing major. Um, also, the March of Remembrance, it's now, I, I haven't seen that it went out, but Bryce, did you send that out on the March of Remembrance, or did Pam? She was going to send it out. Okay, I haven't seen it. I've been in and out all day. But um, it's going to start at a place at Rice University. And so that will be uh, about 1 o'clock. They're going to have uh, at a location, I think it's at the end. Uh, I can't remember now. whether it's, it's all in there. But, but there's a list of interesting speakers. You may not know or recognize any of their names, but I've heard about half of them. And so it's going to be worthwhile to... Um, to listen to them. The description of what it's going to be didn't do much to ring my chimes, but then I looked at who the speakers were, and I thought, oh, that's going to be, they've got two or three uh, good speakers there, and a couple of, one of one guy I went to Israel with on one of my, uh, one, one of the trips, so that's, that's going to be good. Also, uh, we need a deadline to get the information sheets for those going to the Museum of the Bible trip. We need to get that in almost immediately. We have to uh, uh, send this information to the Museum of the Bible by, I believe it is, next Tuesday. So we need to have that ready to go. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we uh, worship a holy God. He is holy. That means he's unique. He's distinct. He is different from anything else because he is the creator of everything else. And so he is unique in his righteousness. He is unique in his justice. And when we sin, then we 
are no longer in fellowship. That means we're not enjoying that rapport with God that is foundational to spiritual growth and to experiencing the abundant life that the Lord has for us. So to recover, we confess sin. So we do that in silent prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we, before I open in prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with him. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we just rejoice at the fact that we can come together this evening to worship you, to study your word, to be reminded of uh, who you are, of your righteousness, your justice, your your infinite power, your majesty. Father, we are reminded that you have a plan, a perfect plan that has been decreed from the end, from the beginning, and that you oversee the outworking of this plan in history, and it is such a magnificent plan that that you are able to accomplish that which you desire without overriding our volition. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we'll come to a greater appreciation of your righteousness and justice and how that works out in the accountability of every human being. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in First Peter chapter 4, and we're specifically looking tonight at verse uh, 5. First Peter chapter uh, excuse me, First Peter chapter 4, verse 6, moving on from uh, the previous lessons. Now, what we saw in the previous lessons is that there's a focus on divine judgment, a focus on accountability. And we saw that that involves two major judgments that take place. One takes place immediately after the rapture of the church, when church-age believers are evaluated for eternal rewards uh, <clears throat> that will, will indicate their roles and responsibilities during the millennial kingdom. Then there is a, another judgment, a judgment that comes at the end of the millennial kingdom after this satanic-inspired re revolt that takes place where an untold number will revolt and rebel against the rule of Jesus Christ, and God will just virtually incinerate them as they are uh, marching on, uh, <clears throat> on Jerusalem. So there's these two different judgments, one for believers, church-age believers, there are other, believer, other judgments for Old Testament saints and for those who survive the tribulation, tribulation saints and, and that. But the major judgment for church-age believers is the uh, Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and then there's the great white throne for all the unbelievers of all times. Now, this fits into a particular context and verse 6 then flows out of the statement in verse 5 that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, we'll see that refers back to that judgment, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. And that is often misunderstood. There are some who think that this is offering a second chance to those who have died, that they get a second chance at the gospel. And so I have titled the lesson, Second Chances, Not a Chance. 
So that gives it all away. But let's look at what the Scripture teaches. So in chapter 4, verse 6, we read this begins, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they on the one hand might be judged according to men on the flesh, but on the other hand live according to God. Now, as we look at this, that initial phrase for this reason takes us immediately back to the previous verse. The first word in the English is for, it's the second word in Greek, but it indicates the same thing, and that is it's an explanation. And so when you have a verse that begins with, usually with for in the English, but with this word gar in the Greek, it tells you that that to go back and look at the previous verse because this is going to explain the significance of that. And so it is for the reason of this accountability. And that was verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the the, uh, living and the dead. Now, let's just review the context a little bit because I think this is very important and we're really coming to the end of the main section of the epistle, that the main body of the epistle ends in verse 11, and then starting in verse 12, we'll get to the uh, beginning of the conclusion to the epistle. But the context here is that Peter is writing to believers, primarily Jewish background believers, who are living in a context of hostility, It may not be extreme hostility, such as Christians experienced later under Nero and under some later uh, Roman emperors who were quite hostile to Christians, persecuted them, took them to the Colosseum and put them in the the Colosseum where they were uh, ravaged by wild beasts and uh, often they were uh, executed or murdered by gladiators and things of that nature. But it was a, a more subtle form of hostility and persecution, one that is not unfamiliar to many of us, but one that I think is going to be increasing. We, he has believers in a context where it's their Jewish uh, family or acquaintances that coming out of the synagogue and they're experiencing hostility and rejection from them, or whether it's the fact that they are no longer living like the Gentiles did. That was the context of uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 where he talks about we've spent enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles and living lives in, in lewdness and lust and, and um, et cetera. And that is, uh, doesn't mean that they, in many cases in the Gentile world, they were, uh, Jews were already assimilating. This has always been a problem with, with Jews and was a problem in the 19th century in Jews in Europe, and it was a problem then that they wanted, there were those who were Hellenized which means they had been completely influenced by Greek culture. And then there were also those who were still uh, true to the uh, true to the synagogue and true to the Torah. But in either case, they would have been in opposition to these who had become Christians and they had seen their life change. And so um, in verse uh, 4, Peter says, in regard to these... 
They think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So they're being ridiculed. Uh, they're experiencing animosity. They are being disqualified by, from uh, being involved in certain uh, uh, social circles. They would be uh, excluded from the synagogue. They would perhaps not be invited to um, celebrate the various Jewish feasts by their families. And the issue was their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. This was a problem uh, that would be experienced, uh, especially in a uh, polytheistic culture that was also pluralistic. As long as you worship a lot of gods, we're happy. But these Christians were emphasizing a that Jesus was a god to the exclusion of the Roman Empire emperor or anybody else, and so that made them rather suspect, and they were thought of perhaps as being uh, enemies of the state. Now, I think there's a lot of parallels there and a lot of application for us in this whole section. And it's a great section, I think, that parents and grandparents ought to talk about with their children and their grandchildren because the people that come under some of the uh, worst assaults in this area now are young people because they're so susceptible to peer pressure. And so they need to be prepared that this you take a stand for for Jesus, you take a stand for Christianity and your beliefs, then you're going to run into a lot more overt opposition than was ever experienced before in this culture. And so we have to understand that as Christians, if we're going to take a stand for the Bible and believe in the Scripture, then we're going to perhaps experience more opposition in business, in uh, social circles, in many different areas. And the case just came to my attention this last week that had to do with a, uh, a military case involving a Colonel Leland Bohannon, who is a uh, full colonel, Air Force colonel, who, was, uh, who had made the decision to, that he as a Christian could not sign off on a uh, certificate of spouse appreciation for a retiring master sergeant's same-sex spouse. And this is the kind of thing that's going to happen more and more. And so he was brought up on charges because he was uh, of, of discrimination. Now, what happened in this case is he would not sign off on this certificate of, of spouse appreciation, but he went to his superior officer, who was a general, and got him, he was a two-star general, and got him to sign off on it. And so he he wasn't... Uh, being hostile. He wasn't being antagonistic. He had no animosity expressed towards his uh, master sergeant. And the article that I've read doesn't indicate whether that was a male or female master sergeant. But he made a point to go the extra mile to get this accomplished. And yet what we see from those on the, on the left and those who are involved in sins, especially in the area uh, of homosexuality, is it's not that they want to be allowed to do what they're doing. They want 
Christians to approve of what they want to do. They want conservatives to change their minds, and if you won't do it freely, then we're going to force you by law or some other kind of punitive action uh, to do that. Uh, Colonel Bohannon was on the verge of being promoted to a one-star general. As a result of this, he was suspended from his command. He's a decorated uh, uh, fighter pilot, and his case was taken up, or I'm not sure if he was a fighter pilot, but he had flown combat missions in in the the, uh, Middle East and had been decorated with the Bronze Star, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and the Air Medal. And they, um, uh, he was going to uh, get get knocked down and then be forced to go out, uh, resign his uh, or retire uh, as a result of this. And the Air Force reversed its decision on this. But what I'm pointing out here is that this is one of numerous cases that have come up in the military and also in civil employment. That if you're working for a major corporation, just imagine if you're a Christian with biblical values and you're a tech whiz and you get a job working, I don't know why if you're a Christian you'd want to go work for Google or for YouTube or for some of these other high-tech companies because they really do have an atmosphere that is hostile to biblical Christianity and hostile especially to conservatives. And so if you go into many fields, many other employment fields, in the next 20 years, you're going to see this kind of hostility become uh, a more and more of a problem. Um, the situation with Colonel Bohannon is that his case was taken up by First Liberty Institute, which handles a lot of these kinds of cases. And so they were able to get him reinstated. But the problem is that this basically ends his career because no matter what else happens, everybody will know about this situation. And so he will uh, not have that opportunity to advance. And this is what we're going to see here. If you want to take a stand as a Christian, uh, not be a secret Christian. Somebody used to call them Clairol Christians because only God knew for sure. But if you're going to take a stand for biblical truth, and that doesn't mean it's a hostile stand. That doesn't mean that you're pugnacious in it. There's a lot of Christians who are unfortunately that way. But if you are responding to the situation as we see in the next, as we'll see in the next paragraph, where you are demonstrating humility and you're, de- you're walking by means of the Spirit, you're demonstrating love and care and concern for others, it, you're doing everything the right way, you're not necessarily guaranteed a right result. And that's what the body of this epistle has been talking about, is that we need to have that mental resolve that the Lord Jesus Christ had. That takes us back to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with that same mind. And I pointed out that the best uh, 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 idea of that, the best translation is the same resolve. You're focused on the purpose and plan of God. You're resting in him. You're trusting in him. You're putting your life in all these issues into the hand of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Uh, Also reminded that in this same section talks about Jesus, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was blasphemed, he did not strike out. All of these things are very, very important for us to learn how to engage 
a hostile Gentile or hostile um, non-Christian pagan culture. And we all face pressures at times not to say anything. We face pressures at at job, career, if you're a school teacher, if you're in uh, if you're in academia, you just want to carry out your your job of teaching and research or whatever, and yet the time is now and the time will increase to, and it will continue to increase to show that that you're going to experience this kind of opposition and hostility. And I think that this is especially true. Uh, when you're dealing with with young people, because the basic problem that we have in our culture is this this rejection of God leads to a hostility and an animosity and antagonism to God and anyone who is perceived to represent uh, the righteousness of God. So we need to be prepared for that. One of the things that is going on in this passage is what we see at the beginning of verse 6, that because of, because of accountability toward God, the gospel was preached. And I want to take a little time to talk about this because this raises some interesting questions. As Peter says, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. So we need to look at this a minute and understand what's going on here. The first thing we see is that the verb is evangelizo, and it's an aorist passive. Now, uh, what that means is we're not told exactly who's doing the preaching, but the implication contextually is human beings are proclaiming the gospel. And it's not a word, it's not the word keruso. We'll go back a little bit later and we'll look at um, the passage in um, <clears throat> 319, by whom also he, meaning Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's a different word for preaching. That's a word for announcing. It's the verb keruso. This is evangelizo. It's where we get our word evangelism, and it's the idea of, of evangelizing uh, those who are dead. Now, the verb here that the gospel was preached that's an aorist tense indicating that it's talking about something that happened in the past. And then there's actually no um, no verb here where it says those who are dead. It just says literally the dead ones. And so now th- these people are dead. The point is that this preaching of the gospel occurred when they were alive. It's not talking about uh, preaching the gospel to them after they uh, were dead. So we need to understand this because this is one of two passages in Peter, and the other one being the one I just mentioned in 319, that have historically been used to argue that there is a, as one writer puts it, a post-mortem opportunity to trust in the Lord. In other words, an opportunity after you're dead to get a second chance. So we need to look at this. It's been an interesting week because of a couple of different things, one of which was this afternoon I went to a funeral over in um, Baytown, stepmother of one of my longtime close friends. So I went over there, and it was at an Episcopal church, and I saw at least four 
clergy staff members at this Episcopal church, only one of whom was a male. The other three were women, and the service was conducted by a woman, so right away you know they're not too concerned about, uh, about biblical truth. But it was interesting to go through the Episcopal liturgy because a lot of that liturgy is biblically accurate. They just don't ever explain anything. They just go through the, this, this liturgy for, uh, for the period of an hour. And in that, they are, uh, they quoted from the Apostles' Creed. We read the Apostles' Creed. Everybody recited it together. And there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that, um, that says that Jesus descended into hell. That's in the English. And that has represented a big problem for a lot of people. When I had, took my first church, which was back in the early 80s, I pastored a church down in Lamarck, Texas, which is the last town before you cross over into Galveston. And this was a church that had been founded in 1895 and was the oldest church first Protestant church in Galveston County, on the mainland of Galveston County. And back in those days, they called them union churches. It wasn't quite the same as what we think of as a community church today, but pretty close. And what would happen is you didn't have enough Methodists or Baptists or Presbyterians to have an in, a denominational church, so everybody met at a union church, and if they had a an interim uh, Presbyterian pastor who held to infant, salva- in, infant baptism, then he would be responsible to get a Baptist to come in to do Christian baptism by immersion. And if you were a Baptist, then you were also expected to bring in a Presbyterian to do infant baptisms. And so they had these different things there, but they had been very heavily influenced over the the previous 50 years by graduates from um, Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary. So they were dispensational, and they were pretty much free grace. And during the years, the 10 years before I went there, there had been a number of uh, young people, we were young back then, uh, young people from Houston, a couple of whom I had grown up with, uh, that had moved down to that part of Texas and were part of this congregation. So it was changing from a lot of the orientation of the, of the, uh, of the older people. But <clears throat> because of that, they had liturgy. We had to, they did the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. They did, recited the Apostles' Creed. But there were some people who didn't like that line, Jesus descended into hell. And there's a lot of discussion about that and just what that means, but that pertains to both of these passages. What in the world is going on here, and why did Jesus uh, go to, it's not hell in the original, it's Hades, so we're going to end up talking about that as we go through this. Uh, Then, two days ago, I was at an office, and I was talking to a man there, nobody else was around. And he said, hey, you're a pastor. I, I, I got a religious question for you. And I've talked to him before. He's a believer, grew up in a small town in Texas, Presbyterian background. He's clearly a believer. But, he, you know, he's just sort of by osmosis picked up some, some biblical truth along the way. And he said, I got in a discussion with somebody the other day, and we were just wondering if people get a second chance after when they die, if people get a second chance. And then along with that, we were wondering what happens if your 
somebody who lives in the rainforest in the Amazon or you live way back in the jungle in Africa and you've never ever run into a Christian, you've never heard of Christianity, you've never heard about Jesus Christ or the gospel, do you get a second chance? Is there some opportunity there? So all of this sort of come to, came together, and then I'm sitting down to study this. So this is an important question, and I walked him through briefly. You know, it's an office conversation, but this is an example of why it's important to be able to, what did First Peter 3.15 say? to give an answer for the hope that is in you. You, it, you know, often we think of that in terms of responding to an unbeliever or to some sort of opposition statement, but this is also true for believers who just are confused or they've never, uh, they've never really been taught. And so <clears throat> we have to look at this, and this is one of, and I was surprised today because I've never heard that taught from either of these passages, but I was surprised today as I was doing uh, reading on this that these are two of the key passages that people go to to argue that Jesus indeed went to uh, Hades and he evangelized either um, you know disobedient Old Testament believers or evangelized unbelievers or something of that nature. So let's take a look at what is going on here. What does it mean by the dead? We have to answer that. Now, some of you may have already thought, well, that's talking about the spiritually dead. Wrong. We have to analyze our words in terms of context. And in terms of context, the word dead in 1 Peter always refers to those who are physically dead. It is used um, four times in 1 Peter, twice here. The immediate context that <clears throat> give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's the contrast there in that merism, the living and the dead. A merism is a figure of speech like light and dark or east and west or the four corners of the earth. You know, it, it, it uses, uses um, antonyms to express the totality of something. So the living and the dead, the dead there clearly refers to those who are physically dead. In two other passages in First Peter, in one three and in one twenty one, it's talking about Christ being raised from the dead. So there it clearly refers to physically dead. So spiritual death isn't the issue here. Physical death is the issue. So why is what what exactly is going on here? Is there a second chance? Well one of the first verses that occurred to me is Hebrews nine twenty seven. This is a great verse to memorize and remember in case anybody asks you about reincarnation as well. It is appointed unto men uh, to die once, but after this, the judgment. There's only one death that's physical, and after that comes the judgment. It doesn't say after this comes a second chance. Now, of course, this also raises questions about not only those who never heard, but those who are perhaps not capable of comprehending or understanding the gospel. And today I got an email from a guy who was at Preston City Bible Church and uh, went on a Grand Canyon trip with me, and he's fairly knowledgeable, but he's got a niece who was, who in turn actually did die today, and she had some um, 
learning disabilities, various other things. And, of course, her mother wasn't concerned that she had ever been able to comprehend the gospel. He thought she did and had believed. So he was just asking me some questions on that. So it seems like everything going on this week was pointing me directly to discussing this particular this particular topic. So to do it, we need to address a couple of things. First of all, we need to address the issue of culpability. Culpability means accountability. Culpability means are unbelievers, uh, do they have enough information for God to hold them accountable and condemn them to eternity in the lake of fire? So that's the first question that comes up. The second question that we need to address has to do with uh, understanding uh, the one clear picture we have in the scripture related to uh, <clears throat> related to death and what happens after death, and that's the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. So we'll look at that, and that leads us then back to understanding what does it mean that Jesus uh, preached to spirits in prison, and how does this relate to the apostles' creed and and um, Jesus uh, descending into Hades. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we'll address the first issue. Now, if you were here for the uh, pastor's conference three weeks ago, you heard uh, Bruce Baker give an outstanding, quite humorous presentation on uh, Romans chapter 1, and he did an outstanding job of that. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, though we were saying the same thing, my approach when I taught through Romans was a a little bit different, uh, but we were saying the same thing. We just came from two different directions, but we're both emphasizing the same, same position. So let's just look at these four verses. These are so crucial. I think even on Sunday morning, I, I mentioned these verses and I go back to them. It's just foundational. There's certain passages in scripture that we just visit and revisit and revisit to make sure we really understand what's going on there. Paul says in 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. I always like that. Invisible things are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and God Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And then verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So let's look at these opening verses here to understand what is going on here. First of all, it's talking about God's judgment. Wrath of God is almost always God's judgment in time. It's not a term that is used for God's judgment in eternity future at the lake of fire. And that would be emphasized by the fact that you have a present tense verb there that the wrath of God is currently being uh, uh, revealed from heaven against the ongoing ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then there is a 
relative clause that comes after this that is quite important because it is describing the men who are receiving this wrath of God. And it is those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what we see here is a verb, a specific verb that's used here, that means, in fact, it has a range of meanings. A basic idea is to hold something down or to restrict it. There's ultimately four meanings according to uh, the Bauer, Art, and Gingrich uh, lexicon, four different meanings here uh, that we'll, uh, we'll look at in just a minute. But what they do is th- this emphasizes something that they, uh, they have a knowledge of truth. You can't suppress something if you don't know it. Now, that will be borne out in the next three verses that they indeed do know something, and they do know the truth. And what we see here is this statement, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God. Now, we need to talk about that word, and we will in a minute. But what may be known of God is the same as the truth. It's in almost an appositional relationship here. So suppressing the truth is equated to knowledge of God in this particular context. So we need to take a little time and understand what's going on overall in the context. First of all, what Paul is saying in verse 19 is that all human beings inherently know that God exists. There's no such thing as a genuine atheist. That comes later. But at some point, every human being knows that God exists. Of course, people say, well, there are a lot of people who reject God. But but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that everyone inherently knows that God exists. Second, this inherent knowledge of God begins from the external evidence of God's creation. Notice what verse 19 says. What may be known of God is manifest in them. It's inherent. That's the starting point of what he is saying. They know it inside of them. They can't escape that knowledge. Everyone knows that. Why? Because God has shown it to them. That's the external evidence. So the third thing we can say about this and what this passage teaches is that everything in God's creation says something about God. If you study art and you study the products of an artist, then you will learn certain things about the artist because they are the ones who design and, uh, and, and create the art. So the that which is created says something about the creator. But what this is saying, because we're talking about the creator of the universe, is that every molecule, every atom, every cell, every flower, every tree, every snowflake proclaims the existence of God non-verbally so that every human being knows that God is present and that God is there. This takes us to understand two categories of revelation. Revelation is a word that means to disclose something, to uncover it. Okay, so God reveals himself. He discloses things about who he is. 
in theology, they talk about two different kinds of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the nonverbal disclosure from God as contained in his works of creation and providence. So what we see speaks to us. There's two different kinds of communication that goes on. There's a communication that is verbal, that has words that are organized according to grammar and syntax, and the words are knowable, and we can uh, specifically define it and understand the specificity of that context. Then there's general revelation, which is nonverbal. We just see something like a sign or an image, and from that we can infer that certain things are true. And so this is what we're talking about here in um, uh, general revelation. And this slide got messed up a minute, so I'll try to fix it. Come on. There. Mm. No, that didn't do it. Let me try it one more time, and then we may have to just move on. Well, that certainly got messed up somehow. I don't know. We'll just move on. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. That's Psalm 19.1. This is a nonverbal communication. Verse 2 says, day unto day utter speech. So that's communication. Each day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. It's not talking about God verbally speaking. It is the information that is communicated through his creation. And then David goes on and says, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So that's universal. Everyone hears the language that is being communicated by God in creation. Special revelation goes beyond general revelation, and it's the direct verbal self-disclosure of God to his creatures. God is the one who originated language. Adam didn't originate it. God originated it. And we read in Genesis 1 that, the, that God said, and then God said, and then God said. He speaks, and it comes into existence. And so the speaking, that communication is special revelation. But the question that people raise is, well, what about those who never heard? The question is, what about those who don't have the special revelation of the gospel. They never heard the name Jesus Christ. They never heard uh, about the cross. They never heard about uh, faith in Christ. Isn't God being unfair by not giving them a chance to hear the gospel? Well, the problem is that God is never unfair, but special revelation isn't the only way in which he has communicated. He has communicated clearly, and what happens is people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, here's an expanded definition for kateko. This word means basically to hold something down, and it has 
a number of different meanings that we find in the um, in the scripture. It has uh, the first meaning. I mean, excuse me, that we find in the dictionary. The first meaning is to prevent the doing of something, or cause it to be ineffective, to prevent it, to hinder it, or to restrain it. Okay, that's one area of meaning. Another area of meaning is the idea of keeping something within limits or confining it um, in, a, in, a, in a restricted manner. Um, under that first meaning, you have two other secondary meanings. One is to prevent someone from getting something, and the second is to hold it down or to suppress it. Now, keep that in mind because I have a quote from uh A.T. Robertson, who is a well-known Southern Baptist uh, Greek scholar, published a grammar that's about that thick and makes a good book stop or doorstop. And uh, he also wrote about a five or six volume set called Robertson's Word Pictures, which is um, <clears throat> very good and insightful in a lot of places. And in this passage, he says, the, the, what the passage is saying is truth is out in the open. Everybody knows it. Truth is out in the open, but wicked men, so to speak, put it in a box that's suppressing it. They restrict it. See, that's that idea of uh, that fourth meaning, which was to keep something uh, within limits in a confined manner. He says this means to put it in a box and sit on the lid and hold it down in unrighteousness. That's suppressing it. That's holding it down. He said, their evil deeds conceal the open truth of God from men. So that's the idea here. It really picks up both, uh, both of these nuances of kateko, that uh, people uh, ref- uh, confine it and they suppress it so that people, uh, so they can act as if it isn't there, so that they can deny uh, deny its its truth. So, what we see as we continue to go through this passage is that there is clear communication about God. Uh, it is revealed from heaven, and so we know from the passage that it is revealing that God is a, a creator, that that creator is unique. And that that creator is our creator to whom we owe obedience. That's going to be seen in verse 20, which says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, what's interesting is when we look at this Verse 19, we have a a noun here that's translated manifest, and then we have a verb here that's translated has shown it. The noun and the verb are from the same root. It's this word that's down below, phaneros, and the adjective has pretty much the same meaning as as the verb, and it's pertaining to something being made evident or clear or plain so as to be readily known, visible, clear, plainly to be seen, uh, open, plain, evident, and known. That's from, uh, that's from BDAG. Uh, 
In other words, what this passage is saying is that what may be known about God, which is that truth that's being suppressed, is plain. It's clear. It's evident. Everybody knows it without exception and without distinction. So what have we seen here? That men suppress the truth. The truth is equivalent in the passage to that which is manifest in them. It's clear within them. You may be talking to uh, an atheist, and they may claim that they don't believe in God. They've seen no evidence of God. That's their suppression mechanism. They know God exists, but they've already put God in the box, and they're sitting on the lid. In fact, they've done more than that. They've gone into the very basement of their soul, and they've dug a a deep hole that's about 50 feet deep. They've put the box in the bottom of of the basement of their soul, and they've covered it up, and then they've piled a bunch of rocks on top of it. But see, the problem with God is he's powerful and he rumbles every now and then. And he vibrates every now and then. And every time he does that, they get really upset. And when you say to somebody, well, I just don't think I can sign off on this spousal appreciation in a same-sex marriage, but I'll get somebody else to do it. What happened is God started really vibrating deep in the bottom of their soul and and little flags are going off in that person's soul and they don't like it and they have to push it down again they have to get down there and excavate even more and push that that box with god in it even further away and that makes them angry and they resent it and so they're going to take it out on you and this is what's happening to uh, the people that peter is writing uh, writing to is that as their life changed because of the gospel then it's creating a hostile reaction among their friends and family and associates. But Romans says that, that this knowledge of God is clear. And another thing that we need to look at here, because it, it's, it, it, I have the King James here, and it says, because what may be known about God, notice that word maybe, what uh, may be known about God, that indicates potential, like it might be known about God. Uh, there's another thing that goes on here when we look at some other um, translations. If you look, for example, at, at the um, <clears throat> New American Standard in Romans 1.19, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Notice the difference. King James and New King James say that what might be known about God or what may be known about God, and the New American Standard and a number of other translations translate that, that which is known about God. And what we have here is the adjectival use of the word uh, uh, gnostis from the verb gnosko, which which is used 15 times in the New Testament, the the adjective is. And this would be the only place where it has that idea of of might be known, of, of possibility, what might be known. So are we talking about the possibility of the knowledge of God, or are we talking about actual knowledge of God? Well, the bottom line is, is that the last sentence 
clarifies it for us. For God has shown it to them. What this tells us is that not only is God setting up this nonverbal testimony to who he is and what he's done, but he's overseeing the process to make sure that everybody understands that what they're looking at is evidence of his existence. The passage says, for God has shown it to them. And that's the verb form of uh, phoneros. It's the verb phonerao, which also has this idea that it is clearly made uh, visible to people. They clearly see it. Now, that's interesting because God, on the one hand, creates... um, creates things that are nonverbal witnesses to who he is. They speak a nonverbal language. They communicate to people that God exists. But then God comes along, and for every human being, he is making sure that that message is driven into their soul and they understand it. So what this passage is saying is, God creates things that communicate non-verbally about his existence, and then he makes sure that everybody understands it, for God has shown it to them. The it there is the knowledge of God. The it there is the knowledge of God, and that's the truth. So God has made the truth evident to every single atheist, every agnostic, every single unbeliever, everyone who says, I don't believe it, I don't need to, I, um, I need evidence, I need to uh, be convinced, they already are convinced. And so this is the picture that we have, is that inside of our soul, God has made it evident within us, and because it is made evident to us. And so there's this this movement going back and forth between the external evidence of God's existence and the internal evidence so that they are uh, they're going to be without excuse. This is what gets us into the next verse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Okay, and this is the verb kath arao. Arao is a word for seeing with the eyes, and the addition of the prefix uh, preposition kata indicates uh, its thoroughness. It's to see thoroughly or perceive thoroughly. So what Paul is saying is the creation itself teaches up thoroughly about God's invisible attributes, and they clearly, thoroughly perceive it and understand it. It is then understood, that's the um, <coughs> verb noeo, which means to apprehend, to perceive, to understand, or to gain insight. They clearly see, because it's probably causal, clearly seen because it has been understood by the things that are made. See, there's no wiggle room there. And what it describes is several things about God. It says that what's revealed is his eternal power. First of all, that tells us it's not its eternal power. It's not the force. It's his eternal power. It's personal. Second, it's eternal So it tells us that he must be eternal. He's infinite. 
and its power, its omnipotence. So right there we learn that, that God is personal, he's eternal, and he's omnipotent. His eternal power and Godhead. And this is another uh, interesting word that is only used here. And it has that idea in, uh, in Greek thought often of a temple. Um, so it, but it always has to do with that which is divine. And so it's indicating his full deity is understood by those uh, who, who, who see it because God's made it evident within them. He has shown it to them. And the result is that they are without excuse. So every single human being has enough nonverbal information where they clearly know that God exists from the external. It's made evident within them because God has made it evident to them so that they are without excuse. They can't say, I never hurt. So what happens is at that instant that they see something, that they hear uh, see anything in God's creation, then they have an option. They can either say, that tells me something uh, 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 there's somebody who created all this. So I want to know about it. A lot of you remember <clears throat> Bert Seville. Bert went to be with the Lord this last year when Bert was just a wee little bairn in Scotland, as he would say. When he was coming home from school, as probably seven or eight year old, he looked at the night sky and saw all the stars, and he thought, you know, I want to know about God who made that. That's expressing positive volition at God consciousness. You come to an awareness that God exists. You can either say, I want to know about the God who created everything, or you say, well, I want to know about God, but I'm going to make up my own God, which is exactly what happens in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And verse 22 then says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And that slide changed on me. And what we have in verse uh, 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, Worshiping an idol or a false god isn't a sign of positive volition at God consciousness. That's a sign of negative volition. Now, of course, people can, in their heart of hearts, God knows if they're truly positive because he's omniscient. And you can have people who are positive ultimately, but they've covered it over with a lot of truth suppression, and they're involved in various forms of idolatry. This can be the worship of various uh, wood, stone, or metal idols, or it can be the worship of uh, through legalism and religion. That was the Apostle Paul. If you met Paul 15 minutes before uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, you would swear that that's one individual who would never become a Christian that they were hostile to the truth of the gospel, and he was. But ultimately, deep in his soul, he really wanted to know who God was, and so God gave him a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he responded positively to the gospel. Okay, so what we've learned from this is that there's accountability, that everybody is without excuse, because God makes it clear 
to every human being through his creation and then the message that comes from his creation, he makes sure that gets through to every single human being, unless, of course, they aren't capable of understanding it. They don't have the mental capacity. All through here we see the word knowledge and understanding and thinking, and there are some that just have either physically or for whatever reason they have uh, some sort of mental uh, damage or incapacity and they just can't understand the gospel. So uh, they're not accountable. God's not going to hold them accountable for something they can't understand. And I believe that babies before they reach the age of God consciousness and and other and people who have some sort of brain damage or mental incapacity and can't comprehend the gospel that they will be saved because they never reach the age of accountability now the other verses i pointed out that is tacked onto this is this passage in 1 Peter 3:19 by whom also he that is Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison and there are those who have come along and used this as a passage to talk about the fact that this is what Jesus did is he gave those who were uh, in prison in Sheol a second chance. However, that was never really used for that in the, um, in the ancient world. Um, <clears throat> but it has become very popular in modern times. So let's look at one other passage, and that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 19 and following. What I'm going to do is put this chart up. This is the chart that we developed from an understanding of Sheol or Hades. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the Hebrew word, and it neither one of them means hell. Hell derives in English from a Norwegian word, and we really shouldn't use it. The biblical term is lake of fire. Lake of fire is not Sheol or, or Hades. What we see here is there's a rich man, and he is very, very wealthy, and he's described in how he dresses and what he does and the food that he eats as, as being extremely wealthy. But outside of his home, outside of the gate of his home, there's a beggar named Lazarus who is very ill. His body's covered with uh, physical sores, and he's always begging for food. And so he is lucky if he gets any crumbs that come from the rich man's table. Well, eventually Lazarus dies. And we're told in the story by Jesus is that he is carried by the angels to a place in Sheol called Abraham's bosom. And this is mentioned in 1622. The beggar dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades. So you have another compartment. What we have over here on the right at the top is a place called Torments, and it is described as to what that is like. He, um, it, it's in the same basic compartment or area as, as Abraham's bosom because the uh, rich man can lift up his eyes and he can see Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So there's some sort of impassable barrier or a great gulf fixed between the two, and um, but there's communication that is taking place here. So he cries out to Abraham. So Abraham's bosom is made up of inhabited by Old Testament saints who have died physically, awaiting 
the death of Christ on the cross before they will be taken into heaven. So he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So he's hot. It's a place of fiery torments. He's thirsty. He, he's desperate for even a drop of water uh, to cool himself off. And he says, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. He doesn't say there's a second chance. In fact, the whole idea here is that there is no second chance. He says in verse 26, the Abraham continues, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he then. He said, that is the rich man, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send him to my brothers, because they need to understand what is going to happen. I have five brothers, let, that he, let him testify to them, and they will, then they will not come to this place of torment. Now, he's assuming, well, there, there's not enough information for them. And that's what a lot of people assume, well, they heathen in Africa or in the rainforest or, you know, in the bowels of the, of, of, the, uh, of the ghetto of the city or wherever, that they've never gotten the right information. And that's wrong. Romans 1 says that. But here, in this Jewish context, Abraham's reply is, well, you're right. They need more information. I'll send Lazarus. Is that what he says? No. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have written revelation. But if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody who is raised from the dead. Now, that's a powerful statement because it points to the real issue. The issue is the revelation of God, whether it's general revelation or special revelation. What happens is you're either positive to it or you're negative to it. You either uh, want to know more or you reject it. And they've rejected the—they've not only rejected general revelation— these five brothers, like the rich man, have rejected special revelation, and no matter what happens, there's no experience that's going to overcome that. You'll hear a lot of people will say, you know, if Jesus came back, then people would listen to him. Well, they didn't listen to him the first time, so why do you think it'd be different this time? Negative volition is negative volition, and all of the miracles that Jesus performed, all of the teaching that he gave, all of the evidence of the, of the incarnate second person of the Trinity that was in their midst was there, and they rejected it. There's nothing we can do that's going to overcome negative volition. So what we learn from this is that also there's another compartment in Hades, and that's Tartarus. That's mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4. This is where the angels that sinned at the time of Noah, those angels, uh, the fallen angels, who cohabited with uh, human wives, married human wives, and they had an offspring race of Nephilim, that they were uh, confined in chains of darkness, according to 2 Peter 2.4, as well as in, uh, in, in Jude. And so this is Tartarus. Now, those demons, those fallen angels, are in chains of darkness. And what happens is that Jesus, when he goes to 
these spirits in prison. He is preaching, but it's not evangelizo. He's not giving the gospel. The verb there is keruso. He is announcing that they have been defeated. They have been defeated at the cross. And so their punishment is secure. He is not preaching the gospel to them. There were some in the early church who interpreted it that way, and so that view was popular in the early church, but not so much uh, in modern times. That's not a major, major view. Now, after Christ did that, after he announced uh, his victorious proclamation to the fallen angels in Tartarus, he then took the Old Testament saints to heaven. Paradise isn't located in Sheol anymore, according to 2 Corinthians 12.4 and Revelation 2.7. It is in heaven. Now, that's the background for understanding this statement in the Apostles' Creed. Well, first of all, that line, he descended into hell, uh, wasn't added until the 7th or 8th century, so it's not part of the original. But it's not saying that he... Uh, descended into hell to preach or to evangelize or that, which is how some people have taken it. Other people have taken it uh, to mean that he's punished. But that's because, especially the English translation, actually it's the word Hades, and it's best understood to be a reference to this victorious proclamation made in in First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 19. So when we come then to our passage in 5, 6, what Peter is saying is this is why the gospel needs to be preached. This is why you need to evangelize the lost is because there's accountability someday. There's going to be judgment. Uh, God is going to judge the living and the dead. And then he says that they might be judged. Um, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. See, that's what was happening. As believers, they were being ridiculed, being judged and criticized by men in the flesh. But the reality is, if they had trusted Christ as Savior, then they would live according to God in the Spirit. They would have eternal life. And so this reminds us, that it is Jesus Christ who came to give us life and to give it abundantly and to provide for us everything that we would need. In John 5.25, John 5.25, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They will live because they have trusted Christ as Savior. Father, thank you for this opportunity for this uh, study to help to understand how to answer questions from those who don't know what happens at death, what happens uh, to those who haven't believed, what happens to those who have believed, to answer questions about your justice and righteousness, understanding that you are perfectly righteous and that everybody has been given a chance uh, to know who you are, and they in fact do know who you are, and it is you have made it evident to them and it is evident within them, and you have secured that knowledge for them. And Father, we pray that we might understand the importance of uh, presenting the gospel to those we encounter, making sure they understand the issue of salvation, and knowing that we get the great privilege of serving you in this capacity, and at times being used by you to uh, lead people to everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.